text for our sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 16. Continue to work through Paul's time, well, Paul and Silas's time in the city of Philippi. You will recall last time that they've been arrested, they've been beaten, and they've been thrown in jail uh, because of an uproar uh, that happened after they cast a demon out of a, a slave girl. And so that's where we pick up our text. Uh, they're sitting in jail in Philippi, and yet the Lord uh, miraculously delivers them from uh, their imprisonment, imprisonment. So let's hear God's word as we find it in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, they took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Something that sets us apart as a Presbyterian church sets us apart from many of the churches here in Oklahoma City, is the fact that we are a Protestant church that baptizes babies. You go to any Baptist church in the area, and they will more likely than not refuse to baptize babies. They will likely even say it's a sinful practice for us to do such a thing. A Baptist church will only baptize those who are able to profess faith in Christ. And that practice is something that's referred to as credo-baptism, a fancy word, children, that simply means believer's baptism. However, here at this church, we certainly baptize those who believe. If someone was to come to faith and they've never been baptized before, we would certainly baptize them, but we also practice what is called paedo-baptism, which is another fancy word that simply means infant baptism. And the accusation you'll often hear from our Baptist brothers and sisters is that this practice is simply a holdover from the Roman Catholic Church, that we as Presbyterians have not gone far enough in our Reformation from Rome. Now, being Reformed and Presbyterian, uh, we have no love or affinity for the Roman Catholic Church. 
This practice is, is not a holdover from Roman Catholicism. Instead, our practice of baptizing children comes from Scripture. And I want to draw your attention this morning to the biblical argument for infant baptism using our text from Acts 16 as a basis for that. And I want us to use Acts 16 as a basis for that because a rather common argument you will find uh, from those who defend the practice of infant baptism is the various household baptisms we find in the New Testament. Now, if you're looking for the smoking gun text in favor of infant baptism here in Acts 16, you will likely not find it here, nor are you likely to find it in any other texts that deal with household baptism. In fact, there are reasons you might look at Acts 16 in the account of the Philippian jailer's household being baptized and, and not find this at all demonstrating infant baptism. Why would you use such a passage to talk about that? Well, I want to challenge um, that today and also encourage you to recognize that the argument for infant baptism is not just based upon one text, but many different texts. We're looking at the whole of uh, the counsel of Scripture as we look at this subject of infant baptism. So let's consider our text here from Acts 16 under the theme household baptism. Now, as I've said, a theme that runs throughout the New Testament is the salvation of households. While we often see in Scripture particular individuals being saved time and time again, God is pleased not just to save a particular individual, but also a whole household, an entire household, a family. Now, this would appear to be a fulfillment of God's promise in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, where God says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. In other words, entire families will be saved. And while the uninspired heading of our sermon text, if, you look, if you're looking in your uh, New King James copy of the Scripture, it says the Philippian jailer saved. Well, that's not quite accurate, is it? Uh, as we look at the text, it, could, it would be better maybe for it to read the Philippian jailer and his household saved. That, that more accurately describes what we have here in our text. Not an individual, not just an individual, but a family saved by the gospel. And we see that this salvation is a result of the simple gospel. The jailer cries out in utter desperation, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas quite simply say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then we read in verse 33, And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Note there the incredible simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is to believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how you are saved. Sometimes we can get ourselves into endless knots by making the gospel more complicated than it actually is. But this Philippian jailer likely had little to no understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Notice a short time frame in our text. We see the, the Philippian jailer cry out in desperation. Then Paul and Silas tell him, must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they have a, a little more time to explain to the Philippian jailer the word of God. And they explain it to him and his household as well. And then the Philippian jailer takes them and washes their stripes. And then after that, immediately after that, they're baptized. All within likely the space of about an hour. This isn't uh, weeks of instruction on the doctrines of the Christian faith. It's not long, drawn-out explanations of the intricacies of justification and sanctification. There's no Sunday school series here on the regulative principle of worship or unconditional election. You have here the simple gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The gospel is incredibly simple. When you talk to a Mormon, they say, or as they go by the, the name Latter-day Saint nowadays, when you talk to a Latter-day Saint, they say, if you want to be saved, you've got to believe this and that. You've got to go through the seven lessons of the Church of Latter-day Saints. They say, then you've got to do this and that to be saved. And then, and then at some point in the lessons, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, actually, everybody is, is saved uh, to some degree, but there are greater degrees of salvation. And if you want, want the highest degree of salvation, well, you've got to believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet sent by God. You've got to do your various temple work, and you have to be able to, to get to this status in the temple, and you've got to do all this and that, and it just gets horribly complicated. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly simple. It is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so simple that the youngest child can understand it. It's so simple that the gospel can be told to a man dying in the street who has minutes to live, and he hear that gospel and believe and be saved. The gospel is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Be sure you never forget the radical simplicity of the gospel. Amid all the complexities of Christian dogma and Christian morality, you must not forget what the gospel is. Now, I can hear what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, how is this passage in Acts 16 an argument for infant baptism? Don't you see that we're told here his family believed and were baptized? What's, what's going on? How is this an argument for infant baptism? Isn't this more of an argument for believers' baptism? And a cursory look at the text would seem to indicate that. 
But I want you to take a step back and notice what Paul says first to the Philippian jailer when he cries out in desperation. The Philippian jailer, fearing for his life, cries out to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice that his emphasis is on I there. What must I do to be saved? He's not asking the question, what, what must my family do to be saved? What must, what must we do to be saved? No, he's saying very individually, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas give a very interesting response. They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. That wasn't part of the question the Philippian jailer was asking. He wasn't asking, well, how is my household saved? No, he's saying, how can I be saved? Paul and Silas curiously add the promise that his household will be saved as well. Now, from our individualistic perspective and, and maybe even closet Baptist perspective, might appear to be a pretty audacious claim of Paul to say, you will be saved, you and your household. After all, Paul doesn't know. He doesn't know them. He doesn't know who his family is. He's likely never met the wife and the children and, and the possible slaves who are part of this household before. Who is he to say they will be saved? Who is he to say they will be saved if the jailer, if the head of the household comes to faith? The cynic in you might even say, well, Paul and Silas just add this idea of uh, the household being saved to, to sweeten the deal, as it were. So it's more likely they can get out of the jail. You know, you're not, you're not just going to be saved, but your family is going to be saved as well. It should free us. However, Paul and Silas say that he and his family will be saved because they understand something crucial about how God typically works in salvation. Paul and Silas aren't being audacious here. They're not being careless with the promises of the gospel. Instead, they are being sincere. And they can make this promise that he and his household will be saved because they understand that God's covenant is not just with believers, but it's with their children or the members of their household as well. God's regular pattern of working is to save in the lines of continued generations. At least this is something we see again and again throughout Scripture. It's repeated for us again and again in the book of Acts. The Apostle Peter said at Pentecost, to the men there who were asking, what must we do to, say, to be saved? And Peter says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Acts 2.39, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter says, the promise isn't just to you guys who, who are asking this question, but it's to your children as well. And Peter there is simply building upon God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. Here, that similarity between Acts 2.39 and what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7. 
Genesis 17, verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Then Peter says, well, the promise is to you and to your children. Very, very similar language. Peter is simply recapitulating there in his own words God's promise to Abraham. And we see this very same promise in our text here from Acts 16. When Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your households. There's nothing new here. This is the covenant promise of God. That God saves in the lines of continued generations. This is why Paul can say what he said. He knows this is God's regular pattern of working. And so at the end of the day, it's almost irrelevant in the debate between infant baptism and believer's baptism that our text says the rest of the family believes and is baptized. I say almost irrelevant because it actually confirms the hypothesis. If God saves in the lines of continued generations, we would expect the family to come to faith. We wouldn't just expect the Philippian jailer to come to faith. We would expect the family to come to faith. We generally think this happens slower than it does in our text. It happens very rapidly in our text. That's part of the wonder that Luke is emphasizing here. Luke uses that word immediately emphasize the simplicity and the power of the gospel. Especially in light of the demonic opposition to the gospel we considered last week. Being shown here, oh, the gospel is powerful. Yes, demons might uh, oppose the gospel. But the Holy Spirit is powerful to work salvation. What we have here in our text in Acts 16 is a confirmation of God's covenant promises. And this argument, when we see the text in this way, it really gets around when you, where you always get stuck when, when it comes to debating the meaning of household baptists, baptism with, with Baptists. The argument, and it's a fair argument, says, well, we don't know if, if children are part of the household here. We don't know the ages of, of children. If there are children, we don't know who makes up this household. And that's true. We don't know who makes up this household. In a sense, that, that question argue misses the point because we have here the salvation of a whole family a whole household coming to faith we see then the simple reality that the gospel promises are not just for parents the gospel isn't just something for the adults of the family but it's for their children as well what a glorious promise this is for us as parents. We worry so much about the salvation of our children. We can trust in the promise of God here. Because he promises in his ordinary means of working to typically save our children as well. And children, what a promise this is for you. God hasn't just saved your parents but if you believe in him, 
he will save you as well. The joy that your parents know in the Lord can be the joy that you have as well. So this is a call for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when you sin, when you disobey your parents, when you get angry at your brothers and sisters, you are sinning. And God is displeased with that sin. And you stand under the wrath of God in your sin. But God promises to forgive you your sin if you believe in Jesus Christ. So children, I want to ask you, are you believing in Jesus Christ? You've been baptized. You receive that sign of, of God's promise. The promise that God will wash away your sins. You believe in that promise of the gospel. So what we have here in Acts 16 is one account of household baptism. There's four other accounts of household baptism recorded for us in Scripture. I just want to go through them and, and, and point out something with them as well. First household baptism is that of Cornelius in Acts 10. We read there that the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard Peter's, Peter's sermon. And, and then Peter said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Next instance of household baptism is found in Acts 16 with, with the baptism of Lydia's household. That's in verse 15 where we read, and when she and her household were baptized. Then, of course, we have the account of the Philippian jailer, which we've just looked at. Then the last two accounts of household baptism are found, found in Acts 18, verse 8, and 1 Corinthians 1. Acts 18, verse 8 describes Crispus's household being baptized. We read in Acts 18, 8, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 1.16, we read Paul say, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. A pretty simple statement. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Now, I want to, the reason I'm pointing out all these is because I want to draw your attention to the fact that almost all these counts, with the exception of the household of Lydia and Paul's baptism of Stephanus's household draw attention to the fact that the household believed and then were baptized. Members of Cornelius's household believed. Members of the Philippian jailer's household believed. And the members of Crispus's house believed and were baptized. Now, that doesn't throw out the argument for infant baptism because this is what we would expect God saves in the, in the lines of continued generations. This is what we would expect. God says, the promise is to you and to your children. We expect families coming to faith. Now, you may buy the idea of God saving families, but you may argue that, well, that still doesn't get you to infant baptism. This is where we need to consider other passages of Scripture that bear upon this subject. We baptize our children because God's command 
to us is to administer the covenant sign to believers and their children. God commanded that to Abraham in Genesis 17. God told Abraham, circumcise your male children and the male members of your household. And here we must see a, a continuity between the old administration of the covenants of grace and the new administration of the covenants of grace. In other words, we must see a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God commanded that that covenant sign be administered to children when God made his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Male children in the Old Testament were to receive the covenant sign. They were to receive that covenant sign because the promise was not just to their fathers, but it was to them as well. And that command to administer the covenant sign was never annulled or done away with by Christ. This was a privilege that the children of believers was, were to receive. It was a privilege that they too receive the covenant sign. And nowhere in Scripture do we find that privilege rescinded. Nowhere in Scripture do we find the command to do away with administering the covenant sign to children. Instead, what we find is baptism replaces circumcision. Now, it's a pretty clear reality we've seen as, as circumcision goes away. Baptism replaces that. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, but they must be baptized. We see Paul administering that covenant sign to entire households, irregardless of whether it's, if it's clear in the text if they believed or not. Now, some might object and say, well, that Genesis 17.10 is Old Testament stuff. That's the covenant God made with Abraham. We're, we're in the New Testament now. Aren't, aren't we under a new covenant? If that's the objection they're making, I would draw their attention to Galatians 3, 7. Where Paul is very clear when he says that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Paul says there, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Paul draws a connection between the covenant God established with Abraham and who we are now in the New Testament in Christ. We are both saved by the same covenant of grace. We are saved by Christ's blood shed for us. You see that we who believe in Christ are, are just like Isaac. We are sons of Abraham because of our faith. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins, just as Abraham was saved by that same blood. And if we are saved as Abraham was, just as Abraham's descendants received the covenant sign, so we too should give the covenant sign to our children. We should not withhold from them that privilege that is theirs privilege that the Lord has given them. The only two differences that I can think of are that the, the covenant sign 
that God commanded Abraham to practice and all of Israel to practice is no longer that bloody rite of circumcision. It's no longer this bloody rite anymore because all the blood that needed to be shed has been shed in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no longer a need for a sacrifice for sin. So we don't need to circumcise anymore. His blithe blood is sufficient to pay for all the debts our sins have incurred against God. Waters of baptism are a picture of, of Christ's blood washing away our sins and, 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 and the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart. That's the first difference here. But the second difference is that it's not just the males who are to receive the covenant sign anymore. We see the, 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 the newness to the covenant of, uh, of God's new covenants. We see that females as well are to receive the covenant sign. Lydia was baptized. And so boys and girls are to receive this new covenant sign. And isn't that wondrous? We see in baptism the profoundly greater realities of the new covenants. Now, I want to briefly touch on a few things as we draw to a conclusion here. First, I say this because this is a mistake, a mistaken conclusion that is often made. We don't baptize our children because we think our children are saved. We don't baptize because we presume they are regenerated. We don't agree with the doctrine of presumptive regeneration. We certainly hope our children are regenerated, and we certainly trust the promise of God that he will save our children. Remember Paul's words, you will be saved, you and your household. God's promises towards the children of believing parents are something that they can cling to and something that should give them great hope regarding their salvation, especially when those children perish in the womb or die in infancy. But we don't baptize because we think they are saved. We baptize them because this is something commanded we do by God, something commanded by God in Genesis 17, that administration of the covenant sign to our children. Second, we don't baptize our children because we think that them going through the rite of baptism automatically saves them. This is one of the errors of Roman Catholicism. They view baptism as fundamentally connected to salvation. But the efficacy of baptism as a means of grace is not to be strictly tied to the day and time it is performed. Here we want to avoid some of the dangers and excesses of some of the early church fathers that said you had to be baptized to be saved and also said that the moment your child was baptized was the moment they are saved. It's clear in the case of Simon Magus in Acts chapter 18 that though he was baptized, he was not saved. Peter said of Simon Magus, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Baptism, the going, just going through the rite of baptism does not save. Baptism does not save apart from faith. We must make, uh, improve and apply our baptism through faith, through taking hold of the realities of our baptism by believing in Christ. 
Finally, I want to briefly touch on what we do about children who are baptized, children of believing parents who are baptized, but yet depart from the Lord when they become adults. I know this is a tender question to many of you. As you have seen, your adult children depart from the Lord, rejecting the faith. This weighs heavily on your mind, and the question can be, is God's word true here? Are God's promises true? We must remember that this is God's ordinary means of working. God does not always work this way. This was true with Abraham himself. And consider how close Abraham was to, to, to the promise in Genesis 17. Where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. And then on that same, very same conversation, God tells Abraham, Ishmael is not saved. And how troubled Abraham was at that, crying out, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Even though Ishmael was circumcised, he was not the son of promise. The same holds true with Esau, son of Isaac. He was not saved, though he was circumcised, though he was a son of the son of promise. While God's pattern is to save in the lines of continued generations, this is not always the case. And we can ask, why is this? And wonder, why is this the case? And Abraham certainly wondered that. And here we must remember that salvation is of the Lord. God is sovereign over salvation. He is mercy on whom he has mercy. And your ability as parents, your faithfulness or lack of faithfulness does not save your children. As much as you might want to be good parents and believe you are good parents and, and should be good parents, your child's salvation is not dependent on that. I think this is very clearly borne out in the case of, of Eli. Eli's sons were horribly and desperately wicked. They stole, they cheated, they lied, they committed adultery. And yet we find Eli charged with raising the prophet Samuel. He's the, even though he's not the biological parent there, he's, he's, in a sense, the adoptive parent. We find that the Lord was pleased to save Samuel, even though he was raised by the same son as Hophni and Phinehas, driving home the reality that salvation is of the Lord. God is totally sovereign over salvation. And what hope this, this gives us when we see our, our failures as parents sin against our children. We, we, we don't have all the right answers. Yet the Lord is still pleased 
to save them if it's his will. And what a dismal and discouraging thing it would be if salvation were dependent upon our abilities. But salvation is of the Lord. In congregation, we should be careful not to judge parents whose children have departed from the Lord. We should recognize, no, salvation is of the Lord. This isn't a mark on their abilities as parents, but instead we should encourage them to see. Encourage them. No, salvation is of the Lord. You must also remember that while your child is alive, there is still great hope. Covenant promises are still in effect. The reality is that that child is still baptized. His baptism somehow hasn't gone away. He's still baptized, and that's something he carries, he or she carries with them to the day they die. And that baptism is, is constantly there, calling them to repentance and faith, marking them out as, as distinct from those who have never been baptized. The parable of the prodigal son is in Scripture for a reason. You never know what God is doing in the life of your child. And so this should encourage us to never stop praying for our children who have departed from the faith. I've heard many stories of children coming to faith years later. Sometimes it's because of, of their baptism. They remember, I've been baptized. That means something. Or it's, or it's the godly instruction they received from their parents, those scripture verses they memorized. They're like a hound that chases after them, constantly reminding them of the gospel, of their need to be right with Christ. So never stop praying for your children that the Lord might be merciful to them and save them. Be like the unrelenting widow who would not cease bothering the judge, the unjust judge. Finally, look to the grace and mercy of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our own Heavenly Father that we have often run from instead of to. And yet he remains ever gracious to us. Look to the mercy of our God in Christ. Isaiah 49, verse 15 through 16 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of of my hands. Now, it's hard for us to imagine a parent forgetting their children. And, you know, that happens. We forget our children. Yet we're told here in Isaiah 49 that even though we might forget our children, God will never forget us. He's inscribed us in the palm of his hands. Let's look to the mercy and grace of our God. Know that in your sorrow of the departure of your children from the faith, that the Lord is with you. That he will never forget your sorrow, but he is always there to comfort and uphold you. 
He is your good shepherd who leads you through this dark valley. Seek him to restore you and give you nourishment in him. Well, in conclusion, as we look at this subject of household baptism, you see what an encouragement it is to look at God's gospel promises. That is, typical pattern of working is to save in the lines of continued generations. And that this household baptism is, is a, a declaration of that. That God doesn't just save us as individuals, but God is often pleased to save our families as well. Let's draw encouragement from the sign and seal of baptism to remember the precious promise that God will wash away our sins and give us his new heart as surely as water washes away dirt from the body. Let's have confidence in the promise of our God, that the promise is to us and to our children and to all who are far off. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you Thankful, Lord, for your covenant promises to us. Thankful, Lord, that you save in the line of continued generations, that the promise isn't just to us as adults, but it's to us and our children as well. Lord, we pray that you would save our children. That, Lord, when they come to years of discretion, that, Lord, they would rise with us and declare the name of the Lord Lord, may they see their sins and see their desperate need of Christ. Lord, may their baptism be a means of grace to their salvation, pointing to their need not just of physical cleansing, but of spiritual cleansing through the blood of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would encourage those who mourn in your church over children departing from the faith. Lord, we pray that they would know of your love for them, your comfort and, and upholding of them. And Father, we pray that you would lead those children who have departed from you, that you would lead them back to you. You, O oh Lord, are the one who restores souls Lead them to repentance and faith. Father, we pray that you would go with us the remainder of our worship. 